0: Thank you very much. It's very hot today. Please sit down.
1: On May 15th, is, uh, President Trump stood be behind a podium be in the sunny Rose Garden. got to suffer through it, but you know what? It's better than bad weather. Flanked by doctors Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci, as well as Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Trump announced an initiative to develop a vaccine against the COVID virus with a name straight out of Star Trek. It's called Operation Warp Speed. That means big and it means fast. And fast it has been. While scientists started working on a vaccine in January, in just over six months since that May Rose Garden announcement, two companies say they have vaccines ready to go that work and are safe. And healthcare workers and first responders and people who live in places like nursing homes may start getting their shots before New Year's. But even with a restless and relentless virus reaching into cities and small towns all across America as an angry summer turned to an anxious fall and fall inches toward a potentially very dark winter, even with infections spiking everywhere, followed as they always are, by overwhelmed emergency rooms and morgues. Even with all of that, people aren't sure if they should get vaccinated against COVID. They just aren't sure. As we approach the possible reality of vaccines being available that could end all of this, the numbers are improving, A recent poll from Pew Research found that 60% of Americans overall now say they would definitely or probably get a vaccine if it were available today. That's up from 51% in September. But only 42% of African Americans said they would get the shots if they were available today, even though more than 70% of those polled said they know someone who has been hospitalized with or died from COVID. And even healthcare workers who will be at the front of the line are hesitant. Only 63% of healthcare workers surveyed by the CDC said they would definitely get a COVID-19 vaccine. So in the first episode of this podcast, nearly 30 shows ago, I noted that this was a scary time for all of us, even me, and that hasn't changed. But I also said I'm comforted by information, and maybe you are, too. So let's get some information on the vaccines that we may be expected to get soon from one of the most respected experts out there. This is a Petri dish side dish, and this week we're talking with Dr. Peter Hotez co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston and the head of the School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. You've seen him on TV, the vaccine guy with the bow tie. Well, he's here. Dr. Hotez, how are you? Hey, Bonnie, how's everything? Well, you know, it's OK. I feel kind of not great right now because I got my pneumonia vaccine earlier this week. But a couple of days of not so great is far superior to dying of pneumococcal pneumonia. So
0: I got mine. That one didn't bother me so much. The Shingrix b- bothered me. That that that
1: hurt. That's next. I'll wait till I feel better from this one before I do that one. But we're here to talk about another vaccine or vaccines that I know will be in my future, fingers crossed. A COVID vaccine, hopefully sooner than later. So here's where we are, as you know. We may have two vaccines approved for emergency use by Christmas, one from Pfizer BioNTech and one from Moderna. And your team at Texas Children's and Baylor is working on a vaccine that's a little further back in the pack. So can you start by summarizing for me where we are right now in pursuit of a safe vaccine that works?
0: Well, we're actually just at the beginning. Uh, I think we'll have at least four or five vaccines approved uh, in the U.S. by the early part of next year. We have a vaccine that we're producing and accelerating with an organization in Hyderabad, India. They're making a billion doses, which is exciting, and being tested across India. So I think you know we'll easily have half a dozen, if not more, COVID-19 vaccines, and they all pretty much work by the same way. They induce an immune response to the spike protein of the virus. So people get all flustered and uh, worried, you know, which, which one should I take? They all work the same way, and they all seem to be working pretty well. Uh, this is, uh, turns out that the COVID-19 is a softer target than we thought in terms of uh, making a vaccine. So that that's good
1: news. When you say softer target right there, what do you mean
0: Well, I mean, if you think about something like HIV-AIDS, where efforts to develop a vaccine began in the 80s after the virus was first discovered, and 40 years later, we're still pretty far away from an HIV-AIDS vaccine because it's such a complex virus. This is uh, what some call clumsy prey, as uh, Carl Zimmer, the science writer, calls it. If you make antibodies, uh, virus-neutralizing antibodies and T-cell responses to the spike protein, it, it... blocks the virus from attaching to our tissues and replicating so uh, and it turns and this is builds on research we've been doing over the last decade showing just that for SARS and MERS and now this coronavirus and it seems to work really well and so the question I'm often asked is hey doc which one are you gonna take or waiting for and answers I'm not waiting I'll take whichever one is offered to me because I think they'll all work uh, more or less the same way I think the only Questions are going to be around durability of protection, because we don't know how long does, does protection with the mRNA vaccines, this is a new, a new technology, last for three months or three years or 30 years.
1: So even if the COVID virus is, as Zimmer said, clumsy prey for a vaccine, if we get two emergency use authorizations this month for a virus we didn't even know about a year ago, that's still fast, right? I mean, and that makes some people nervous.
0: Well, there's a misconception out there that somehow, you know, this vaccine appeared like magic over a period of months. It didn't. It It is built on a decade or more of research and development, um, showing learning about how the virus behaves, how it binds to the ACE2 receptor because the SARS-1 does the same thing, showing that the spike protein is essential to bind to the receptor, that how you make the vaccine to the spike protein is important. we learned all of that from SARS. So in fact, this program for COVID-19 vaccines, you can argue has been going on for 15 years. And um, I often wonder what would have happened if this virus had been more complicated like the hiv aids virus or malaria you know we're 20 30 years later we still don't have vaccines so in some ways i don't want to say we lucked out this has been a horrible horrible uh catastrophe public health catastrophe but that definitely worked in our favor the fact that um this is a pretty straight as vaccines go this was about as straightforward a target as you can get
1: both the pfizer and the moderna vaccines are mrna vaccines and as you mentioned just now, that's a new technology, which also makes some people nervous. So tell me about it. Well, mRNA is
0: pretty central to the genetic code. Some people say the, the origin of life is actually from RNA, not DNA. And it's a very versatile molecule. And what happens is that makes pro, that's what makes protein and presents antigens. So in the past, you know, if you remember your high school biology, DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein and protein is what induces the immune response. We've been doing a downstream approach making the protein, but the groups at Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech have been doing a little upstream approach saying, what if we just gave the RNA? And um, that idea has been around for a couple of decades. The problem is the RNA is very unstable. Uh, It breaks down very easily. And so the trick was trying to figure out how to encase it in in a lipid oily coat to preserve it. And they, they finally cracked that that piece.
1: Okay, so I'm gonna step away from Dr. Hotez for a minute and dust off my trusty science to English dictionary and dive a little deeper into what he's talking about there. So both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, the first two that the FDA will consider for emergency use authorization starting this week are mRNA vaccines. Scientists have figured out how to make synthetic RNA that, when injected, teaches our cells how to make a protein. And remember, as Dr. Hotez just said, making protein is what RNA does. And that protein triggers an immune response. So these mRNA vaccines appear to teach our bodies to recognize the proteins that this novel coronavirus uses to get into our cells. Those proteins are called spike proteins. Now, you recognize spike proteins by now, even if you don't know you do. They're the pointy things on all the artist renderings of the COVID virus that you've seen this year. They're why it's called a coronavirus in the first place. Corona is Latin, and then in other Romance languages like Spanish and Italian, for crown. Under a microscope, those spike proteins apparently look something like a crown. Corona. Well, it's the spike proteins that make the coronavirus such a sneaky jerk. They pick the locks on our cells and then get inside and start replicating. Now, the mRNA vaccines teach our cells what to look for in the virus, so they'll see the spike proteins coming. Good luck picking a log at a house if the house's owner recognizes you as the guy who's been picking locks all over the neighborhood because she's seen your picture on the news. You're not even getting close to the door, friend. The homeowner might wrestle you to the ground and then call her friends to wrestle your friends to the ground. Bottom line, you don't get into the house. The same is true for the COVID virus's spike proteins. The vaccine teaches our immune system to recognize the spike proteins like it saw them on TV and then to keep them from picking the locks that let them get into our cells. But while scientists have figured out how to make RNA vaccines and make them safe and effective, they still haven't figured out how to safely store them in, say, the fridge. The Pfizer vaccine, for example, has to be kept at a Bitter, minus 70 degrees Celsius, which is minus 94 Fahrenheit, and colder than winter in Antarctica. The Moderna vaccine can be kept safely at minus 20 Celsius, which is minus 4 Fahrenheit. Not Antarctica cold, but definitely not something you can carry around in a cooler with a few ice packs. Why so cold? Let's go back to Dr. Hotez.
0: Oh, uh, that's because, as we were saying before, RNA is a very unstable molecule. And the hard part was figuring out how to stabilize it in the lipid-oily envelope, but it's still not as rock-solid stable as our vaccines, our recombinant protein. So it's that deep freeze for Pfizer, minus 100 degrees. It'll stay stable, I think, at, at refrigerator temperatures for a day or two. Uh, but that, you know, that's one of the problems. Now, the scientists... We'll improve it. So the next time around we have an mRNA vaccine, you know, given the pace of discovery, they may have figured out a way to do it so we can keep it at room temperature. But for now, that's that's the deal. So what does that mean for distribution? Well, it's going to make it more problematic. The Moderna vaccine is not as complicated. It could stay in refrigerator temperatures, I think, for a month so. That could be stored in local pharmacies and that sort of thing. Um, but that'll be the next one coming down the pike. And then the adenovirus vaccines to follow will be, um, will be uh, even uh, more stable.
1: OK, I got to ask you about this tweet I saw going around that said something like any vaccine that needed to be kept so cold was definitely not really a vaccine. It was instead, for sure, something that was designed to basically manipulate and change our DNA for I don't know control I guess like like some sort of great science fiction conspiracy and it's nonsense of course because the RNA doesn't go into the nucleus it's not made into DNA it doesn't get
0: into our genome that's point one and you know and and they just love piling out conspiracy theories and then they're saying the it's coded so it uh it's going to receive signals from the outside it's going to that they're going to be able to do surveillance of us through microchips. And, and of course, it involves the usual gang of three, me and Bill Gates and Tony Fauci and all this, just all nonsense conspiracies. But uh, it seems to work for them. It, it gets a lot of clicks. Unfortunately, it's uh, very, very powerful. And they're outgunning the pro-vaccine forces, which have not put in place any communication strategy. So, you know under this fake banner of health freedom or medical freedom now they add on mass and content protesting against mass and contact tracing they're causing a lot of damage
1: so this is what frustrates me about this kind of thing this kind of information often targets underserved communities that are being hit so hard by this virus but also may already be reluctant to trust the government. And for good reasons you can find in recent history. So Dr. Hotez, you've spent much of your career studying infectious diseases and their impact on people in poor communities and countries, and you've written a couple of books about it. So let's dive a little deeper into reaching these underserved communities, not only with good, accurate information, but with actual vaccines. Let's start here. Are you concerned that these communities will get left behind in this push to vaccinate the nation and the whole world, really, against COVID?
0: Well, they've certainly got left behind in terms of health messaging and COVID prevention, right? I mean, in here in, here in Houston, you know, the Houston Health Department puts out their death list from the day before. And you know, it doesn't provide names, but it provides age, sex, and race or ethnicity. And every day you just read down the list, Hispanic, 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 black, black, Hispanic, Hispanic. So especially, you know, the African-American community is getting hit very hard. The Hispanic community is really getting hammered um, in our metro areas, South Texas. I mean, it's just awful. We see what's happening in El Paso and Lubbock right now. That are really getting hit hard this is uh, um, uh, congresswoman escobar from el paso invited me to testify to the congressional hispanic caucus and what i said you know which i really feel very strongly this is historic decimation of the hispanic communities because there are a few things that are going on um you know a lot are in especially in the low-income neighbors they're essential workers and then they bring it home. They And there's often multi-generational families there. So the 20-year-old on a construction site comes home to his 40, 50-year-old parents who get sick, and the 70, 80-year-old grandparents who get sick. And it, the whole thing just, just snowballs. So it's been really uh, tragic. And that, that information has not gotten out as much as it needs to, the devastating impact on the on the Hispanic community. And the other thing that, Bonnie, that I've seen is when the CDC put out um, the uh, information about people who die from COVID-19 over the summer, and, you know, the narrative out there is it's all people over the age of 65, it's, you know, people in their 70s and 80s, and that's true. And and they cite information among white non-Hispanics that find 13% of the deaths are under the age of 65, which is terrible. But then among the Hispanic communities, 35%. So, So what's happening is this is robbing the Hispanic community of a generation of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And it's just decimating. So I've been doing all I can to try to get the word out about that.
1: So, what do we do about it?
0: Well, I think you know. Hopefully, um, we have never really had a national response to COVID nineteen, so it was all always left to the states, and the states never had the epidemiologic horsepower to know how to do this. They needed the political cover from the CDC. So, we're going to have to definitely double down and emphasize the importance of getting these populations vaccinated. Vaccinated, you know, provide access to. Um, COVID nineteen vaccines. You know, one of the strategies is to build build a lot of it around the pharmacy chains, uh, you know, CVS,
1: Walgreens. So I've heard here in Texas that H E B, the grocery store chain, it also has a plan. H E B's got a plan. Great. Now, now, now
0: when Bucky's has it, then I know we're we're all set. Uh, that's my favorite place.
1: Right? Stop at a highway rest stop, get your fudge, which is what I get at Bucky's, and get a vaccine. And that does seem to be a way to go to get into these communities, right? Well, but, you know, I was on, for instance, on a radio station in
0: Chicago last night. Um, and Af- you know, that, that really speaks to the African American community. And we were talking, and they pointed out something to me, which I should have known, but, but it finally clicked when they told me. They said, you know, in the low income neighborhoods, a lot of African American neighborhoods, you know, they don't have a CVS or a or Walgreens, you know. So how? What are you gonna? How are you gonna provide access? And so, these are all important questions that have, to, and a lot of it is going to have to be worked out at the state level.
1: Right. And if you have food deserts, you know, places where entire neighborhoods don't have access to fresh food because they don't have a grocery store nearby you probably also have pharmacy deserts, right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And if we've got all these populations that might be what they call vaccine hesitant and others that might be more difficult to reach, how do we get enough people vaccinated to slow the spread of this virus in any meaningful way? Yeah, there's a few things that happen. We did a study
0: with a group at City University in New York that we published in American Journal of Preventive Medicine showing we need to reach about 70, 80% of the population to achieve herd immunity. So remember what we want these vaccines to do. We want one to keep us out of the hospital and getting sick, but also if enough people get vaccinated to stop transmission, but that bar is pretty high, you need 75 to 80%. So it means if we're going to do this, we're going to have to reach uh, minority communities. We're going to have to get the kids vaccinated. We're going to have to advance those clinical trials in adolescents and kids. And we got to do something about this anti-vaccine movement, because if we just allow them to to run, do what they're doing, we are not going to reach that herd immunity.
1: And then both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine require two doses to be effective. So that makes it twice as difficult to get to herd immunity, right? Well, that's really important because nobody,
0: nobody gets virus neutralizing antibodies to any significant level with one dose. So getting one dose is the same as not getting vaccinated. You need those two doses. So you have to have situational
1: awareness to come back and get vaccinated. So having a vaccine out there that is so close, we can almost touch it. That doesn't mean the pandemic will end this month or even soon. Well, you know,
0: it's the first month is going to be this next month is going to be tough because we only have 40 million doses. So we can only vaccinate 20 million Americans, because that's two doses. And that's why, you know, they picked it to stabilize the health system, vaccinate the healthcare workers and those in nursing homes and assisted care facilities. But in, over the next few months, we're, we'll,
1: we'll get there. Thank you so much, Dr. Hotez. We'll get there, but we're not there. Not yet. So we can't let down our guard. Not yet. Dr. Fauci has been putting it this way, and I like it. It resonates with me. He says the vaccines are like the cavalry. If you're backed into a corner and you hear the cavalry, you don't stop shooting and let your enemy get you just before you're saved. You don't put your gun away. Yes, help is on the way, but it's not here yet. So you keep fighting. Of course, Dr. Fauci means you keep wearing your mask, you, you keep avoiding indoor gatherings, you keep physical distance between yourself and those outside of your household. You keep washing your hands, right? Yes, that means preparing for a household-only Christmas this year, or Hanukkah, and New Year's Eve, and New Year's Day. But just this year, help is on the way. Fingers crossed, we'll all be vaccinated and this hateful virus will be in the rear view by next December. But right now, COVID is still gutting families. It's gutting communities. It's decimating a generation of entire populations. So, you know how sometimes people get through difficult things by saying to themselves, I only have to do this thing, whatever it is, for five minutes, I do this all the time. I can do anything for five minutes, or five days, or five months. It's finite, right? We can get our minds around it. We can do just about anything for a finite amount of time if we know it will end. Yes, maybe we have to live this restricted life for, say, five more months. We can do that, right? We can do anything for five months, even hard things. We can do this. The cavalry is coming. Petri Dish is produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.